Hello and welcome to the A to Z of Tech podcast with myself Louise and my co-host Treya. On this episode we're going to be exploring O for open data and some of the many uses that it has. So I know personally when I think about open data I would tend to associate it with open source intelligence for example given my, um, my day job and threat intelligence but maybe that's something we can come back to later in the episode after we've heard from our guests. Thanks, Louise. You're right. Open data does cover a lot of things and can be interpreted in different ways. For me, it often means open source coding languages like Python. I'm really curious to hear what our guests have to say about this. So without further ado, I am delighted to say that we're joined on this episode of the podcast by three guests, Rob Freeman, Roger Thornton and Hayden Jones, who are going to be shedding a little bit of light on some of the different uses and applications of open data. So over to you, Shreya, to introduce our first guest. Thanks, Louise. Our first guest today is Rob Freeman, who is a freelance technology journalist and lecturer. Welcome back to the A to Z of Tech, Rob. Thanks, Shreya. Thanks, Louise. Let's begin with definitions. What does open data mean to you? So I see this in, in a number of ways. I suppose it depends which hat I'm wearing at any one time. I think as a general internet user, open data is important and interesting is because it's adding to our the, the sum total of kind of what we know and what we can um, access on, on the web particularly. The immediate name that comes to mind when anyone says open data to me is probably Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia is uh, what some would describe as an open source encyclopedia and it over years and years and years has become a huge repository for information about stuff and all those articles have been made by I mean I use the, use the term normal people but they're, they're normal people with specialist knowledge and they are giving their, their time uh, and their attention completely freely it's a huge altruistic endeavor. Thanks, Rob. That's that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, what does what interests you about open data? Uh, what are some of the applications that excite you? So, well, I think this is about uh, having, um, uh, as I said, you know, access to to uh, a plethora of information from all over the world. Journalists are increasingly looking at uh, how they can find more data to either stand up stories or to uh, uh, put more um, kind of meat on the bones of the stories or to prove them. There's a really interesting case from a few years ago um, where you've got uh, uh, a murder that happened on the border of Mali and Cameroon. And uh, there was uh, proof that the murder happened, but it wasn't entirely sure where it was. And the Cameroonian government said, pretty explicitly, these were not, uh, this was not us, uh, these were not our soldiers that were involved, and tried to blame uh, Marley on the other side. A, a group of researchers using the technique that actually Louise has mentioned here already, open source intelligence, were sifting the internet for data that already exists to, tr to try and uh, prove where this uh, murder happened. And this includes things like being able to work out the angle of the um, uh, shadows, so they could determine not just the time of day, but the time of year. One of the key things that 
proved in the end that the that the action was committed by Cameroonian soldiers uh, was the ability to track the uh, outline of the mountains that appeared in some of the stills and the very brief video. Now this was probably well over five years ago, but already in terms of open data, there's much better, if you were gonna do this investigation again, there's much better and faster ways of doing it. There's an app called Peak Finder, for example, which was uh, the idea for this came from uh, walkers. They were, they were sick of sitting on the top of a mountain that they just had a great climb up to. Uh, and then pointing to various peaks and arguing about, you know, is that Oxen Hope Stoop Hill or is that Coombe Hill? Uh, and they invented an app that scans uh, topographic data and then using uh, GPS that you could point it at the outline of the mountain, it'll tell you exactly where you are. Very similar to the kinds of apps you get for um, you know, stargazing. You can uh, point your phone screen up at the sky and it'll tell you whether you're looking at the plow or the Big Dipper. I always get those two confused. Uh, my other favorite one of the moment, just because in Britain in the last few weeks, we've had some, we've had some significant flooding, uh, is um, uh, an app called Gage Map. Uh, the Environment Agency in the UK have a, a huge amount of equipment that's just sort of pinging out river levels all the time. And uh, a company called uh, Shoot Hill put all this stuff together. Uh, and you can go to Gauge Map and you can look very precisely at uh, river levels right across the United Kingdom. A really, really fascinating use of open data. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. I think that was a really useful contextual overview of some of the uses and applications of this type of data. And with those in mind, our next guest is Roger Thornton, who is a principal hardware engineer from Raspberry Pi, um, which in itself, I think it hopefully will explore is a brilliant example of some of the early development of open data. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit more about what your role is with the Raspberry Pi? Of course. Um... So I work as a hardware design engineer uh, primarily, um, so I help uh, design uh, and take through testing, manufacturing, compliance, uh, the, 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 the products that we sell, so small credit, size, credit card sized computers. Um, I, I've been with the company for about six years now. Um, and in fact, uh, sort of the history of Pi goes back almost 10 years now. And the hypothesis went that uh, people of that generation just hadn't had an easily accessible computer to, to learn on. So there was a, a group of people who grew up with things like BBC Micro and Spectrum and things like that, where you spent a lot of time working on the, the insides of a computer. Whereas there was a generation that grew up with sort of Windows PCs and you should never be interacted on a lower scale with the, the PC. So the hypothesis went, uh, what if we created a small, cheap, open computer that people could develop and learn on. And that's where Raspberry Pi was born. So would it be fair to say then that, that Raspberry Pi, even in its early days, was sort of something of a something of a game changer, really? Yes, absolutely. I mean, no one had ever done, uh, no one had ever sold a, a computer of this power um, for that price. So we sell, we sell, these days we sell a desktop PC replacement for $35. So it's, it's a, a more uh, order of magnitude cheaper than the cheapest desktop PC but similar levels of power, uh, sort of performance. 
really exciting. Um, I, I suppose, could we explore a little bit more about the role of open data in your company's philosophy and any examples of new products that may be using open open source hardware or software? Absolutely. So um, we've always tried to make a, a product that is open to people to use. So we try not to, to lock anything down. Uh, there is a division here naturally. The, the, the hardware is quite closed in the sense that we don't give away the 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 schematics the, the layout part we don't give out the, the sort of the ingredients for someone to go and make their own um but everything else the software side is as, as open as we can make it and that you know that closed part of the hardware is really just to protect the business you know we need to have some level of protection so that we can continue selling these things and and and, and uh, funding the work that the charity does um but we have recently uh in on January 21st, we've launched our first uh, chip-based product. So it's a, a microcontroller that we've developed in-house, and that's been placed on a, a, a product called Raspberry Pi Pico. Now, Pico is a fully open-sourced piece of hardware, so we've given away the design files for, for doing that. Um, and that's all around the idea that people can go away and design their own product around RP2040, which is a low-cost microcontroller. So we are slowly... Uh, you know, slowly making other bits of our business open as well, with the hope that it sort of inspires and and fosters this um, growth and people picking up the product and using it. Um, and you mentioned there briefly the the, the sort of the foundation um, the charitable organisation that's associated with Raspberry Pi. Could you tell us a little bit more about the role that that plays as well? So there's a charity called Raspberry Pi Foundation. And that owns the single operating share in uh, in a company called Raspberry Pi Trading, and that's the tech company. Now, I work for the tech company, and and so the, when you buy a Raspberry Pi computer, you're buying it from from the trading company. But we're a a fairly unique tech company in the sense that we're a non-profit. So every time any profit that the tech company makes gets donated to the charity to help it fund its mission, which is to help get people into computer science. Brilliant. Um with that i suppose that future's view in mind turning back to open data specifically what do you see as being the future for open data whether that be i suppose new products or new sources of information uh, well i think one of the things that raspberry pi has done quite well is is increase the amount of open data that's collected around the world a lot of these projects that you see um i believe uh, rob was mentioning that the river gauge project a lot of that those um level sensors are connected to raspberry pis so through this piece of hardware that we're able to make for, for sort of market beating prices it's opened up a huge number of open source projects where people can easily deploy an instrument to something that they wouldn't typically be able to do and so i, I can see that yeah with our generations of the main computer and also now this microcontroller product that we've uh, started selling, that the opportunities for generating open source data have greatly increased. And, and we equally remain committed in, in the company to try and make the software as open source as possible and wherever financially possible you know, and financially viable, we'll try and make bits of hardware open source so other people can build or develop on further with them. Can I, can I jump in there? Uh, Roger, first of all, can I say how 
brilliant and privileged I feel to be on the podcast with someone uh, from Raspberry Pi. It's an organization that I've uh, held in esteem for years. I am one of those people who were brought up on those sort of BBC microcomputer, you know, digging into things and working out how coding was. So yes, the I, I absolutely agree. Your point about the ability for something that costs, you know, a few pounds, a, a handful of dollars, that can sit there um, uh, and you know ping out the passage of trains or you know how what the, the the flow of a river level happens to be that's got huge capability you wouldn't be able to do it without hardware like the pi because it's so cheap and what amazes me when i hold it in my hand is uh, how how capable it is as well as being cheap so yes the, there is way more capacity here uh, with hardware like the pi um, and the the capacity to cr create interesting applications using open data. Um, uh, it's just the creativity of the people who happen to be holding that massively capable, really, really cheap hardware. Absolutely. Thank you, Rob. And thank you, Roger, for I think what was really insightful view from, from Raspberry Pi. Absolutely. Um, and then next, I am delighted to say we're also joined by Hayden Jones, who is a director here at PwC as a, a senior blockchain market specialist. He's both an engineer and a lawyer by background, um, also with a broad experience in financial services, and is also the author of An Executive Guide to Blockchain. So Hayden, um, with that introduction, could you tell us a little bit about your career pathway to date and how you've ended up in the space of um, open data and, and blockchain? Of course, Louise, thank you very much indeed for the introduction. So, um, so I'm an engineer. Um, I was brought up uh, with televisions around me. Um, my father uh, used to work for a company called Radio Rentals. So we always had uh, new flashy, shiny televisions in the house. And it was through that interest in electronics that uh, I went through to university. And then uh, I actually worked for a big defense company. Uh, studied cryptography as one of the projects that we did there. So had that as a first foundation with respect to my career. Uh, but the curiosity in me took me into law. So I studied law, which is all about solving people's problems, which actually, interestingly, is very much centered on open data because law is about um, making public decisions, making decisions public so that people can see them. So it's judge-made law and obviously legislation that's all about open information. So it's a very interesting angle here. Um, and then after law, I ended up in investment banking. So seven years in investment banking, dealing with all sorts of tricky problems, such as, you know, you'd send $100 million in one direction with the expectation of getting you know, shares or debt back in the other, and the trade would fail. And there would be a big stewards inquiry with respect to all what's, what's happened here because there's a lot of operational risk there. Um, so I had that as a reference point and uh, sort of niggling away at the back of my mind. There must be a better way we can, uh, we can solve this problem. Um, and then through into consulting, worked for a big uh, central bank. Um, and that was really one of the sort of final jigsaw pieces in terms of understanding how money works, how payments work how the financial services ecosystem works. So, you know, this, this sort of law, legal background, this engineering background, financial services, central banking with some, with some regulation thrown in, 
Um, all of these sort of you know ideas and this experience was sort of just stating in the background. And then I started hearing about something called Bitcoin, which I thought was 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 very interesting and um, never really um, seen anything quite like it. Didn't really understand what it was all about, um, but could see there was you know there's a big big piece of cryptography in there. So so you know previous knowledge of cryptography was 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 very helpful. And then I started to realize, well, actually, it's very curious what uh, what they've done here, what, what Bitcoin has done, because it's based on an open ledger uh, whereby everybody can read from it and write to it in a way that's completely publicly accessible globally 24-7, 365 days of the year. And uh, you know, it creates this ability to, and we can have a debate as to whether we truly believe Bitcoin is a store of value or not, because there's you know, the volatility piece in there. But for those that believe it is a store of value, um, it gives you the ability to move a store of value from one, uh, what is effectively an account or what's described as a public address to another public address, which is very interesting because this is sort of very counterintuitive to what we experience in normal organizations where we have very closed environments where all of the databases sit behind a firewall, uh, behind that sort of perimeter, the, the, the technical perimeter, the hardware perimeter. So organizations restrict the flow of information across them and between them. And it's interesting because actually in many cases, and this is the big thing we learned in investment banking, was in a large proportion of cases, we're actually all holding the same information, but it's equal and opposite. So I will have a position um, I'll be long that position, but somebody will have the opposite position uh, on a general ledger. They'll be short that position. So for me, this sort of that was the sort of the entry point into open information, open data, and it was a very different way of of uh, of, of, of solving business problems. And that was the you know the principal traction which got me to where I am now, whereby we um, you know, we as PwC. We look at how blockchain can be used both in a, uh, you know, as it relates to financial services, so focused on uh, things like securities and payments, authorization, licensing, but also non-financial services use cases, so things like provenance, identity, credentials, and such like. Thank you, Hayden. That's super exciting to hear you talk through all of that. Um, will cryptocurrency become a bit more acceptable tool of business in the near future? And what are some of the opportunities you see from cryptocurrencies? So the point I would flag is the moves of the different regulators, the work that uh, the different regulators have got underway, because they recognize um, that it's there. They recognize, in some cases, the opportunity. So if you look at uh, United Kingdom, we've got the, the Treasury Consultation uh, that's come out this year with respect to a framework for regulating stable coins, which is very positive. Uh, we've got the Europeans with markets and crypto assets, their consultation that came out uh, last year. So, so what that's pointing to are two you know, major regulatory uh, regimes who are looking towards creating a strong, resilient regulatory framework to support this technology. So that points to they recognise the opportunities. Um, you also have the central banks, interestingly. So the central banks also see the opportunity uh, and they've borrowed some of the ideas within this technology and they're in the process of 
of creating their own central bank digital currencies, which is incredibly powerful because the, you know, the, 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 the frictional cost of a payment in an economy does not in of itself add value. Um, so if we can reduce, you know, you think of all the money that's spent on just payments, the cost of a payment, it doesn't add any value. So, um, you know, the idea around central bank digital currencies is that we can create programmable electronic money that's you know, securely, safely issued by a central bank. And all of that's pointing towards taking friction out of the economy. So you know, what, what's the point of spending money on on um, a cost that doesn't necessarily add value. So, so the regulators are working hard to create a robust framework. You know, the central banks see the opportunity in terms of leveraging this technology. Um, and um, you know, expectation over the next um, 10 years is that in the same way over the last 20 years, we saw this huge wave of adoption as it relates to the internet, which is open information. It's about moving data from A to B. Um, I think over the next 10 years, what we'll see is this really big adoption of the fact that actually we can send we can send value and we can send value in such a way that it doesn't need to go through traditional payments infrastructure. Uh, but the way that value is transmitted is that it executes the other leg of the transaction. So we go back to where I started, which is that if I send Tria $100 million, um, my expectation is that I get back bonds or shares to that same value but because that transaction is recorded on a public ledger uh, and it's executed on a public ledger everybody can make sure that that transaction happens in a way that's safe and secure that it does execute and if there's any risk associated with the transaction not not settling um, then it doesn't happen because both sides of the of the transaction need to be confirmed so lots of opportunity there to to you know take friction out of different tiers of the economy thank you so much hayden that definitely sounds like an exciting space to watch out for in the near future perhaps we change tracks a little bit louise in your experience with threat intelligence and the work we do to protect clients from potential threats how do you think of open source or open data Absolutely, Shreya. So as I mentioned briefly at the top of the podcast, for me, when I think of open source, or open data, I will tend to think of open source intelligence. Um, and that's a term that really can cover information that can be obtained from any kind of open source. So, for example, um, media coverage that might be newspapers or radio or television. It could be information from, for example, professional or academic records, or it even includes things that are public data. So government reports or public hearings um, and speeches. And also, interestingly, um, it not only covers what we call indexed online content, so basically anything that you can find through a search engine, but it also covers unindexed content as well. So that's what is more commonly referred to as the deep web, um, which is still actually publicly accessible, uh, sorry, so publicly available, it's just less accessible. Um, and this type of information can be used in a variety of different ways. Um, so it's also important to bear in mind it needs to be used in a legal and ethical way to actually make it useful to our clients. So obviously, of course, take into consideration things like data and personal protection rules and legislation. Um, but from a threat intelligence perspective, the types of uses that we can have for um, leveraging open source intelligence 
include, for example, what we might call digital footprinting. So this is working with high profile individuals or chief executive chief executives, for example, and identifying information that is available about them publicly that could be used um, potentially by a determined adversary. So that might be personal data they have on social media platforms. It might be their education and work history. Um, it could be, as I said, sort of other social media data and helping them understand what type of information is available out there about them that could then be leveraged for a malicious purpose. Um, or other examples include um, what we call red teaming. So this is actually using open source intelligence um, sources to collect the, the types of data that could be exploited and then helping, for example, by creating a spear phishing campaign that can test employee awareness um, and demonstrate how, again, how this type of information can be leveraged. Thanks, Louise. And I think this sort of naturally falls into the agenda of personal data and how we share it, how we can protect it. And it, it, it's quite illuminating to hear this from you. Thank you so much. On another note, a big thank you to all three of our guests for a really fascinating and slightly surprising discussion. Are there any resources that you think our listeners might find useful if they want to explore more around this topic? If you're interested in finding out more about um, Raspberry Pi and what we do, um, raspberrypi.org is our website. That, that gives you access to two things, really. It gives you access to uh, all the amazing work that the foundation does. So that's... Um, computer science education for uh, kids from you know sort of primary school all the way to sixth form so if you are uh, like most people stuck at home trying to uh, inspire education in someone um, that's a great place to start learning and we, everything there is free um, and it is platform agnostic so you don't need a raspberry pi to start using it thanks hayden how about you any resources so uh one of the things i did before joining PwC was to set up a company that was dedicated to uh, helping uh, people in business understand uh, how blockchain digital currencies work and uh, we trained I know in excess of probably about 2,000 people on and off uh, as far afield as Australia uh, that led to a book um, so the executive guide to blockchain so myself and co-author Maria Grazia Vigliotti the book is designed as the kind of thing that you would give to your grandmother or your mother, your father, your friends in business to help them understand. So it's written in language that um, we hope uh, people can, uh, you know, pick up over the weekend and they can get their heads around what blockchain digital currencies are all about. Thank you both. Uh, Rob, if there's anything recommended from you. Yeah, so what I tend to tell people that if they've benefited from someone else's altruism in, in in adding a bit of information publicly and that's helped you i always try and get people to think about what it is that you know that you have that you could contribute as well how can you help someone else with just a little bit of knowledge a little bit of data that in aggregate helps us all become a little bit better kind of soppy i know but uh i i think these are, are fascinating places and uh, the, the, the capacity for us to improve our business lives and our personal lives from open data I think those I think it's it's only upwards from here thanks so much Rob open data where does the world go from here more privacy or less privacy our next episode is all about that P for privacy
If you've enjoyed this episode, why not try our Business in Focus podcast, featuring experts from across our firm and beyond. PwC's Business in Focus series shares practical tips to help businesses tackle most important issues in today's world, from net zero to trade and investment. Listen now on Spotify and iTunes. Thank <music> you.